Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. About 10 years ago, I met a lady. Her name is Maria, and she has agreed to talk to us today. She has a history in her family of more than one child with mental illness. I was impressed by how she's managing it, her understanding of the parameters, her frustrations, and her observations of what it's like to be a parent with such a challenge in life. I applaud her, and I met her through a group that works for mental health advocacy. We are only going to use her first name. Maria, thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely. Is there any way, when you look back at what happened to you, that you could have prepared yourself for the challenge of multiple children with multiple mental illnesses? Just what are your general thoughts? Just walk us through it. Nothing could have prepared me. It is like your loved one got hit with a mass truck without a truck. You don't know what happened. You think back to when your parents would say, oh, it's a stage bill, I'll throw it. Or it was a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a job loss, something they'll rebound. Or they're teenagers. No teenagers are ever happy. Just all those types of things. There really isn't anything that prepares you. I was blessed and somewhat compromised by none of my children having any issues in their educational year. They went through grammar school, middle school, high school, and college, including two at University of Florida, one on the dean's list, with no issues. Things happened later in life, so I naturally thought it was something environmental. I think that's it. You, you really think something caused it and they'll outgrow it. And when they were still in their funk, let's say, they're still in their not being who you knew them to be, is when... I needed to start exploring and understanding what else could it be. In my search, I reached out to an organization called NAMI and took a class that was called Family to Family, and it's a support group for family members who have a loved one with a mental illness, but I didn't know what they had. It helped understand symptoms to begin to get your head around if they have anything and begin the journey. For me, the one with a more severe condition, he refuses to accept that he has anything wrong with him and actually just refuses to take medication. He's got a lot of difficult times going on. I've lived with them until I could afford to subsidize them to live on their own. And then when that pool of financing dried up, they lived back with me. That was unbelievably slippery slope to have more than one adult child living with you. And then that's the whole other thing. When your child or your loved one is an adult, you can't really be for them in mental health. If someone with a mental illness doesn't have an advocate of a family member, that's a true challenge. That's a true challenge. But the system doesn't readily allow family of an adult child to interact. And I just had to keep, I call it fucking the system. I had to keep trying to help my loved ones get service and you know, attention that they needed. Does it make you frustrated, angry, scared? What does it do to your own emotions? One topic when I did that NAMI class where they asked you what your goals are for healthy, independent living or healthy, dependent living. And pretty much everyone in that group was with unhealthy, dependent, or independent living. That's why we were in the group. 
that question shocked me because I never thought of my loved one needing healthy, dependent living. Yet I was doing that with them coming back to me. So there's a bit of a wake-up call. There's a bit of a shock factor associated with clearly identifying that. But you have to just keep hitting the reset button. Fearful, yeah. Frustrated, yeah. Scared, yeah. But at the end of the day, you can only do what you can do. I have to say, when I finally surrendered the feeling of having to rescue them from themselves, I felt a huge weight lifted because there is a certain point in our being, I mean, in our day-to-day doing that, we don't have control of things. It's important to ground yourself that you're doing your best. And yes, oftentimes our best may not be good enough, but I've said before, you have to play the cards you're dealt. And they didn't ask for what they have. The person you love is trapped inside of that illness. And every once in a while, you get to see the lucid person that's trapped in there. That gives you a bit of, I want to say, joy that that person is still alive, but that person is trapped in there. So your question was frustration for me as the caregiver, but then if you flip that around, imagine how they feel. They may or may not realize they have something. They have feeling too. And even though the wiring is frayed and not connecting very well, gosh, to be young and have the challenge that they have is just, it's just such a, it's such an unfortunate set of circumstances. So the long and the short of it is I do the best every day. And very, very often, I have to hit a reset button. Remember that saying, that's the way the cookie crumbles at a certain point in time. You just have to let the cookies land on the ground and then begin to pick them up. You can't always save that cookie from falling off the table. You said to me sometime past what I thought was a very profound comment about family members. For those when the child, whomever, is alive, versus has killed themselves or died. When you said that, and it still plays in my head, but the different emotional relationship, God, I would imagine when these people whose kids have died, it must twist things in your mind. Are they jealous because your kid is still alive? Where do you put all this stuff? I am involved in the local community with adults who've lost their child. And a part of me feels that they are behind me wanting my life situation to be a success. And they are enormously supportive and understanding, empathetic. So I've never felt any jealousy that mine are alive. And I felt them wanting to see me succeed and learn from what they've learned. That pain of losing a child or a loved one to mental illness That's a black and blue that never goes away. You have to work hard at finding joy, moments of joy, moments, finding moments of joy with a broken heart. They haven't lived their life. They haven't had the experiences. You just, it's such a gaping hole. It's, it's a, it's, it's an emotional hemorrhage. I think seeing what I'm challenged with gives them a sense of helping me and me seeing what they've experience, their wisdom, unending pain. Oftentimes, I can help pick them up when they've had a down day because it was their loved one's birthday or passing day or graduation day, whatever it was. But there are those moments where they need to be picked up. So even though the chapter is closed, 
it lingers. I do consider two separate categories of caregivers, those who have loved ones alive and those who have loved ones who are past. And the ones who have lost their loved ones are amazing mentors and support to those who have loved ones who are still with us. The real issue underneath it all is living with the mental illness. Can they live with it or is it going to pull them down? Living with it can often be a living hell. It's not easy to walk their walk, but oftentimes with therapy and medication, they can live a fulfilling life, albeit not the one ever could have foreseen. There is purpose in it. We are infinitely better than we were 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, but there are many things that we cannot fix. The multitude of services that you've tried to get them into, why don't they work? Is it money? That's complicated. It is, but it isn't. Uh, I don't know, maybe I'm oversimplifying. The key that unlocks the door to success is within the patient of being capable of wanting to get the help. You could be in the best place or in the worst place, but if that internal switch within the patient isn't in here, the best place won't do it. It just can't happen. There's a loss of the empathy that they may have had when they started. That's doomed as well. The best care, the worst care is greatly reduced in terms of effectiveness by and measured by that patient wanting and accepting and being self-directed. And that's the hardest, that's the hardest thing to put into place. What do you do to make those changes? How do we get them focused in the right direction, not to burn out, not to lose the passion? I think back to a parenting lesson that I would stand where if you're always yelling at the child, they tune you out. And that one tactic for listening was when you're upset and you want to talk seriously to them, lower your voice volume versus raising your voice volume. And that takes such discipline. A different tactic for we, the caregivers, to recognize that we're talking to a record that has a scratch on it and that it's going to skip and it's not going to hear what we're saying the way someone who has full faculties can hear it. A lot of victims are brilliant. Their minds are brilliant, and but something gets a little twisted up. And so as caregivers, to approach it without the yelling and the screaming and the frustration and you'll never amount to anything or you broke the TV or this communication tactic, your loved one will shut you out. They turn you off. They turn the TV off. They don't hear any of that. There are different communication tactics. And sometimes the lights go on in the most random, unaffected, unplanned situations. The, the new word is organic. The old word was life just happened. You can't predict how certain things happen, but sometimes good things can happen when you least expect them just as much as bad things can happen when you least expect it. It could be a friend. It could be an activity. I think the burden we have as caregivers is we need to fix this. We brought them into this world. We're blood. If we can understand and accept and seek out others that could maybe make a difference. Sometimes going to peer groups, peer support groups, and they hear someone else who's got the similar struggle they do, 
some random person can make all the difference. You just have to keep trying different combinations or permutations of options and not think you individually have the answers. What do you do, therefore, to keep yourself charged, to keep yourself from just being overwhelmed? And I could see also the potential that bringing someone into your life who might not appreciate, understand your world could limit your own, shall we say, social life. How do you keep yourself charged? That is a great question. I say to myself, I'm a single gal and I'm single proactively because oftentimes I don't want to be in my own life, in my own shoes, in my own clothes. Why would I want to bring someone else into it? And whoever you bring into it hasn't walked your walk, doesn't have the bond of the first day your loved one opened their eyes. It complicates things. So what I do is I do a lot of volunteer work. I volunteer with Animal Rescue. I volunteer with NAMI, running support groups for them and education classes for them. And I'm active in a local Boca Raton nonprofit that seeks out youth leadership for those who are challenged with new situations and mental health first aid education for different school systems. I keep myself very busy. And there's always something, and I have a couple of dogs, and they look at me and say, please, are we going for another walk? <laughs> so, And a sense of humor helps a lot. A sense of humor helps a lot. When all else fails, you have to find the tragic humor in it all. Give yourself some breathing room. One of the miles that you have walked is reflected, obviously, in the way that you have just spoken about yourself. Thank you so much for being so honest. I'm quite sure other people will look for what you just said, which is the way for your own survival. I wish you well. I wish that we in psychiatry had the magic bullet. I thank you again for your openness and your clarity, for your willingness to try to fix a problem. It's shocking. It's shocking how common it is. And if there was one closing comment I could make for therapists, for families with a loved one, it's not seeking the answers. It's trying to ask the right questions. It's honing in on the questions. The answers will come, but if we, if we put our mind on asking the right questions, we'll be farther along with getting answers. I wish you well. I thank you for the work that you do. And you're welcome. And thank you for reaching out. And I hope this helps others. It will. Wonderful. Thank you all.